In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing. We thank you, O Lord, for your goodness and patience upon us. We ask, O God, that you protect us and all your people in every place. Open our minds and our hearts to you, O Lord, and help us to hear the message that you have for each one of us tonight. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> Good evening, everybody. Um, God willing, today we're going to continue our study of the book of Genesis. Uh, last time we finished uh, Genesis chapter 12, uh, which uh, finished with the story of Abraham or Abram uh, when he went to Egypt after he first arrived to Canaan and he found that there was a, uh, a famine uh, in the land of Canaan. Uh, and so he departed from Canaan and he went down to Egypt and there he claimed that Sarai, who was his wife, uh, he claimed that she was her sister, she was his sister and then Pharaoh uh, took her as a wife, uh, and then God sent a punishment upon Pharaoh in Egypt as a result. And so Ab Abram uh, admitted that she was his sister. Um, and then now he's leaving, departing from Egypt uh, and going back to uh, the land of Canaan, which is the land that God had promised him. So if you remember, uh, Abram started in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, which was in the region of Babylon, uh, which is in modern day Iraq. And then he traveled to Haran. Uh, and then from there, he stayed 15 years until his father died. And then from there, he went to Canaan. And then from Canaan, he went to Egypt. And now from Egypt, he is going back to Canaan again, uh, which is where we're going to start off uh, here in uh, chapter 13. Okay. <clears throat> in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. <clears throat> Then Abram went up from Egypt, and he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Okay, so Abram here is returning, uh, as we said, from Egypt back to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. So essentially wherever he had, when he had arrived at Canaan and had settled, uh, he left from there to go to Egypt. And now he is returning there uh, to the same place that he was before. And, and we see here that uh, he had made an altar to the Lord uh, offering a sacrifice to God. And so he returned again to the same place where the altar was. And Abram called on the name of the Lord. Okay, so he prayed to God in this place. Um, and then with, with him also was Lot, who was his nephew. Okay. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. 
or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. So here we see there is a conflict that's happening between the herdsmen, like those taking care of the herd and the flocks, both of Lot and of Abram. Both of them had a lot of possessions and a lot of, uh, of the flock, a lot of animals. And so because the land was, um, you know, they were all trying to live together in the same land um, where the animals would graze and the, the, the animals of one versus the animals of the other, there started to become some tension and conflict between the herdsmen of both Lot and Abram. So Abram, when he begins to see that there is this conflict and there is this strife, because he cares about peace and he wants there to be no conflict or tension between him and his relative, uh, Lot, he decides to approach Lot and to have a conversation with him to deal with the situation, okay? And we see here there's many things we can learn from this conversation that Abram had with Lot. The first thing is Abram is the older, right? Abram is the older. He is the one who uh, is the patriarch. He is the one who was chosen by God as the patriarch of an entire nation. If anything, Abram has a very, very high standing, a very high status, right? Uh, and, and, and so for, for Abram to be the one to have this, to start this conversation with Lot shows the humility of Abram and how he didn't want there to be any conflict or strife between him and his family. Okay? And he's the one who, who took this initiative. He's the one who started and to, to say, this isn't, I don't want to live this way. I don't want there to, for this situation that is causing conflict to continue as it is, but we have to stop it soon and quickly. And so the first thing it teaches us is that he was very humble. The second thing it teaches us is that we shouldn't let conflict and tension between close friends and family to, to linger. Because when it lingers, this is when it starts to build resentment and bitterness and to cause bigger problems, okay? So he, he dealt with it quickly. The third thing we can learn is look at his compromise that he made, okay? First, he was realistic. Like, like he understood that in, in, the, in the context of where they were living, it was going to be difficult for them to find a solution if they continued to live together, right? Um, you know, many times... We see like uh, adult children of parents, for instance, that are living together in the same place, in the same home as their parents. And there can be conflict because their parents have a certain way of running things. And now their adult children who have, you know, maybe recently, you know, graduated from college or whatnot, and they're now living uh, with, their, with their parents, uh, have a different perspective, a different view, a different way of life, a different way that they choose to live. And there can be conflict between the two, right? So it's not wrong to separate. Right. This, this, but the separation here wasn't out of hatred. It wasn't out of anger. It wasn't out of cursing and insult. It was a separation that that identified that there was a problem and then and that each person needs their own space. Right. Each person needs their own space. And when there is the opportunity for that, when there is the ability to have each person have their own space, there is nothing wrong. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. That in itself, the concept of, oh, well, Abram needs to live in one space and Lot needs to live in another space. There's nothing wrong. And when we separate, we're not separating as enemies, right? We are separating as friends with mutual agreement and understanding and love and peace between us, okay? So Abram understood all of this. He understood that something needed to be done in the moment. He didn't wait for Lot to be the one to come and talk to him. He didn't show anger toward Lot and anger toward the situation where he just kind of like internally felt upset about it, but didn't take action. No, he took action. He took the right kind of action. He had a conversation. 
you know, sometimes when we're upset with another person, um, our responsive like is like passive aggression, you know, like we, 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 we make a hint here. We say kind of a snide comment there. We're sarcastic. We, we do things that are subtle and hidden to try to give a sense to another person that we're upset with them without being clear and direct. But here Abram was clear and direct. He didn't, he didn't try to send any hidden messages. He was very clear. He said, this is a problem. What's the solution? Okay. The other thing is the solution that Abram came up with, again, like, like, like showing his humility, is he gave Lot the choice. You know, he gave Lot the choice. He told Lot, all of this land is here. You tell me where you want to live and I will take the rest, right? I'm giving you the church. Even though he was, again, the elder and he was the patriarch and he was the chosen of God. And in every way, like, like God already told him that this land was his. Can you imagine? Like God told Abram after having left his home and traveled for thousands of miles to this place, God told him, this land is yours. I am giving it to you. Like someone would, you know, in Abram's position would think to himself, this is like, I have authority here. Like this is, this is my place and I will decide who lives where and I will decide how things go and how dare you come and challenge me and, and tell me that, you know, you don't have enough space for yourself. Right. But this isn't what Abram did at all. Like, like he acted as though he were the visitor. He acted as though he was the, the, the lesser of the two. Right. And he said, wherever you want to go, if you take the left, then I will go to the right. And if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. Okay. Abram was not angry. And this separation, even though it was a separation, it wasn't a separation of hatred. It was one of peace and understanding. Right. And so here we begin to see the character of Abram. Like, how is it that, you know, why out of all the people in the world, did God choose Abram to be the one who was going to be the patriarch, the father of all of the Hebrews, all the Jews that were to come after him, the people of God. Why did God choose this man? We begin to see some of the characteristics of Abram that were so unique and special that, 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 that caused God to choose him as opposed to choosing um, anyone else. Okay. <clears throat> and Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan and Lot journeyed east and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Okay, so what are the characteristics of this land? When Abram gave Lot the opportunity to choose whatever land he wished, what were the characteristics of this land that he chose? Okay, well, it says here um, in verse uh, uh, in verse 11, okay, then Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, okay? And the plain of the Jordan was like what? says what it was well watered everywhere right like the garden of the lord <laughs> like the garden of the lord it was like it was like eden it was like it was like paradise like that's how great this land was okay so so it had like a, like amazing characteristics right and so this is what lot looked for he says you know what 
if I'm going to go and live in a certain place and, and the reason that we are separating is because I need a place for my things, my animals, right? Uh, my livestock, this is my livelihood. I need to find a place for them, right? And so if you give me the opportunity to choose wherever I should go, well, I'm going to pick the best place, right? But Lot, when he made this decision, okay, he made it with worldly eyes. Like he, he, he looked at from like a materialistic perspective, you know, from a worldly perspective, what is the best, you know? You know, maybe like in our day, we can think of what is the job that's going to get me the most money? What is the career that is going to get me the most money? Where is the place that I'm going to make the most money? What is the company that I'm going to have the best, the most money in? Like from a completely secular, worldly, materialistic perspective, what is the best place? Okay. But if you look here in this verse, verse 13, right, which is the land that he went to dwell in, which has had the city of Sodom in it. It says Sodom were, and this is actually where Lot ended up living in the city of Sodom. Okay, it says Sodom, the, the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord, right? And yet, despite the wickedness of the people, despite, despite how much they hated the Lord and lived in wickedness, was actually was going to be the downfall of Sodom and the downfall of Lot and his family, right? Despite this, despite knowing this, he still thought to himself, well, this is the best place. You know, this is the place where I'm going to get the most out of, right? So his balance and his judgment, the way that he judged and the way he made a decision about where he should go was so much based on the worldly perspective and not at all based on the heavenly perspective. And sometimes we make decisions this way based on what might be financially beneficial or beneficial to me in some other way without considering what other aspects there are that might have a negative effect. For instance, a lot of people... Um, you know, when they talk to me about, you know, they're graduating from college and they're they're starting a life and they're going and, and you know, wanting to, to work in a certain field and a certain company and so on. A lot of times their view is completely about how do I make a name for myself? How do I, you know, advance my career the most? How do I do this? Even at the, 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 the expense of other things, like, like, for instance, if I accept a job where I'm going to be traveling 90% of the time, let's say, okay. Like, like, am I self-disciplined enough having a job like this to be able to find a way to go to church on a regular basis? Am I going to find a way to attend a Bible study? Am I going to find time to read the Bible? If I have a job where I have to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week, okay, am I going to be self-disciplined enough for me to maintain all of my spiritual practices while at the same time doing this? I'm not saying it's not possible for sure. And actually, I know some people that do it and can do it and do it successfully, right? But how difficult is it for me with such a lifestyle to be able to do this, right? Is, is my goal, is my number one that I'm going to find a way to go to church. I'm going to find a way to read the Bible. I'm going to find time to pray. I'm going to do this. And then that's my number one. And then I will find time to do everything else. Or do I look at it in reverse, like the things that I have to do are work, the things that I have to do are travel, the things that I have to do. And if there is time, then I will find time to go to church and so on, right? So we see here like a backwards kind of uh, priority list here in, in, in this decision that Lot made, right? Abram was willing to give up the most fertile land. Right. Abram didn't say, you know what, I'm going to have the land of Sodom and I'm going to have this land that's like the Garden of Eden and you take this. No, Abram was saying, 
the peace is the most important thing. You lot choose what you want. And when Lot chose this land, Abraham, Abraham didn't like jump on him and say, no, you know, this land is, is the land I wish to be. You know, sometimes we, we, we say things that we really don't mean. And then, you know, hoping that it will work out. Like, like Abram could have just said to, to Lot, well, pick wherever you want, because that would make him seem the most noble. Uh, and then when Lot chose the thing that secretly Abram really wanted, then he would have said, well, you know, this land is really the best. So, you know, maybe it'd be better if you go somewhere else. Like he didn't do any of that, you know. So Lot used his worldly eyes to make this decision, right? And unfortunately, this would end up leading to him losing everything uh, that he had. Um Somebody says, that's why when you put a schedule for yourself every day, it will make your day so much easier, for sure. Like, we have to balance all of our time um, so that we can make time for everything that's important. Okay. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth tree of Mamre, which, which are in Hebron, and built uh, an altar to the Lord. Okay, so this is where actually this place um, in Hebron is where later Abram was going to be visited by angels. Um, we're going to read that later on. So we see him now going to this place, uh, and God has said to him, lift your eyes, look in every direction, north, south, east, and west, and all this land is going to be given to you and your, and your descendants. Uh, and also he told him that the number of your descendants is going to be like the sand of the sea, like the so much beyond even counting, right? And, you know, we live, obviously, you know, I guess the, the population of the earth is, what, approaching 8 billion now? Uh, so, so, you know, we live in a time where there's a lot of people on the earth. But back then, there wasn't anywhere near the number of people, you know. And for him to consider someone of his, you know, background of, you know, he's this obscure man coming from an obscure place. Like, like who was he to have that many descendants, right? And so God is giving him really, like, an amazing promise, Okay. The other thing that we see about Abram is that he never received in his own lifetime the, the fulfillment of this promise. You know, like um, he, he was promised all of this by God about something that is going to happen to him later in the future, right? In the future after he's not even present to see it anymore. Abram had to simply believe and trust in what God was offering him and giving him by faith, right? Which is why um, in the book of Hebrews, I believe it's uh, Hebrews uh, 11, uh, and in Hebrews 11, uh, which is the chapter that speaks about the heroes of faith, okay, from the Old Testament, it recounts all of these figures of the Old Testament that lived by faith and it was accounted to them as righteousness because of the strong faith that they had. Abram is one of those heroes of the faith because he believed all these things that God had said, even though he had received none of them, right? And, and Abram was uh, obedient, right? In, in following all these things, even though he never saw for himself those descendants that, that were like the sand of the seashore, and yet he was 
um, very faithful to God. So again, Abram is a very uh, special person that God here chose. Okay. Chapter 14, uh, we read about um, the, the captivity of Lot. Okay. So Lot was captured um, by, again, this land that he went into was not the most peaceful place. Um, he was captured as a captive. I mean, he was kidnapped. And when Abram hears about this captivity of Lot, he actually goes after him to rescue him. Okay. So this is what we're going to read now um, in chapter 14. So it says, and it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Shedder king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinad, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Okay. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the, sea, so the salt sea. Twelve years they served, served Shadlalomer, and in the 13th year they rebelled. Okay, so the region that Lot chose to live, which is this region of Sodom, was within this domain of this king whose name was Shadlalomer, okay, the king of Elam. And the name Shadlalomer is a name that means servant of Laomer, which was one of the gods of Elam. Okay, so this is a pagan king, okay, and, and, and Laomer was one of the gods that he worshipped, and so Shedder Laomer, his name means servant of this god, okay, and this king was very much known for his violence, um, and so after 12 years of submission, um, these five kings uh, rebelled against Shedder Laomer, so he was like a king who had other like domain, like of other people who are considered kings under him. And so after, after these 12 years of these five kings serving Shedrilomer, they decided to rebel against him. So Shedrilomer now is going to go to war against these five kings that are rebelling. And he's going to take with him three other kings. Okay, so you're going to have a total of four kings, including Shedrilomer, who are fighting these five rebellious kings. Okay, that's now what's what's happened. In the 14th year, Shedrilomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim and Ashtoreth Karanaim and Zuzim in Ham and the Emim and Shava Kiriayathaim and the Horites in their mountain of Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Shadrilomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Okay, so one of these rebellious kings that is fighting against Shedrilomer is the king of Sodom, which is the city that Lot um, is, had, had dwelt in. Okay? Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's uh, brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom 
and his goods um, and depart. Okay, so um, we see here the relationship between Lot and Abram. It's, Lot is Abram's brother's son, so it's his nephew. Um, uh, and um, remember, Lot is the one who went to, to, to live in the city of Sodom. Okay, so symbolically here, uh, Lot represents a person who chose like wickedness, right? And as a result of their wickedness, they lose all that they have. They were taken into captivity, right? Because of their wrong choices that they have made. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. Okay, so, so far Abram was like not involved in this in any way. This is affecting this other part of the land, the part of the land that Lot had, had taken and, and moved there. So someone who escaped from this battle went to Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and brother of Aner, and they were allied with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and, all, and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Shadralomer and the kings who were with him. Okay, so uh, Abram, he got together these 318 trained servants who were born in his house and they divided the forces and they went and they attacked them and they were able to uh, rescue uh, Lot and all of the others that were taken as well as the women and the other people and all of their goods. Okay, so they were successful. One thing to note here, uh, it was in verse, um, verse 16. So we read previously that it said that Lot was... Uh, his brother's son, right? Lot was his brother's son, which means that he was his nephew. Here in this verse, it says, brought back his brother Lot, right? So it's using the word brother, okay? So here the word for, uh, that's being used for brother is ben, ben. In Arabic, it's the word is ibn, meaning the son, right? Here, the, the word in Hebrew is a generic word, which is translated brother, which can mean different things. It can mean uh, uh, like blood brother, like directly brother, or it can mean some other kind of relative. Okay, just so that there's no confusion here that in one case it's calling Lot his brother and the other case it's calling him his nephew. Okay, so that word is a generic word. Here now we, we are introduced to this very mysterious figure. One of the most mysterious figures in all of the Bible. Okay, because we know very little about him. His name is Melchizedek, okay? But it says, then Melchizedek, this is the first time we hear about him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram, all right, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. Here it's saying, and he, he is referring to Abram. He gave Melchizedek a tithe of all. Okay. These three verses 
okay, are the only thing that we hear about Melchizedek that like directly like events that happened with him, okay? He's mentioned in other places in the scripture, like referring back to this event, but as far as who he is and, and why he did this and what happened to him, and this is all we're going to hear about him in the entire scripture, okay? So let's look a little bit at what this is said. I'm going to read it again because it's like very short, okay? So it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Remember, this is after the victory, right? Where, where Abram had the victory and all of these kings uh, were victorious, right? And uh, bring, brought back Lot and all of the goods and the women, okay? Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him, meaning he blessed Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tithe of all. So this man, Melchizedek, this king, he is a type of Christ. He is a symbol of Christ. He wasn't a pre-incarnate Christ, but he was a symbol of, of the Messiah. Okay, and I'm going to explain like several things, several mysterious symbolic things about him. Okay, the first thing is usually whenever we're introduced to like an important character in the Bible, okay, uh, it is, uh, oh, sorry, someone's asking, is the term the same term as the one used to refer to the brothers of Jesus? No, actually, because here in the Old Testament, we're reading it in Hebrew. So the word is ben. And in the Greek, in the New Testament, the word is adelphos, okay? It's a different word, but it also has a similar meaning in the sense that it can be used generically to refer to relatives, not necessarily to like a blood brother, okay? Uh, Melchizedek, okay? So what are the characteristics of Melchizedek uh, that is, you know, a type of Christ? The first we said is he knows, we don't know anything about his genealogy, right? Usually when important figures are introduced, it, it's given something like, it's, you know, for instance, Abram, it's Abram, the son of Tira, right? Like somebody, somebody else that we can connect, connect them to, okay? It's anyone of importance. But here, this man, he has no genealogy, right? And so this is a type of Christ because number one, Christ, he had no biological father, right? And he had no mother according to the divinity. So his, his mother is according to his incarnation, Right? But, but according to his divinity, the son of God has no mother, okay? So, so in that sense, right, Christ didn't have any genealogy. He had no earthly genealogy, right? And so here also this man, King, of Mel King Melchizedek, he didn't have any earthly genealogy. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, okay? Which also we know that Christ is a king of righteousness. It says that he is the king of Salem, Okay, Salem means peace, right? And so he is the king of peace, just as we also refer to Christ as the king of peace or the prince of peace, okay? Another very interesting thing about him is that he was both a king and a priest. Keep in mind up until this point, we haven't heard anything about priesthood. Like everything related to the concept of priesthood started with Aaron. Aaron, the brother of Moses, he was the first priest, and this is in the book of, uh, of Leviticus and, and after the Exodus. This is where we start reading about the rules of priesthood and what does it mean to be a priest and who can be priests. It's those of the sons of Levi, right? All of the priests of the Old Testament, 
They came from the tribe of Levi, and specifically, they were descendants of Aaron. That those were, were the priests. So every single priest came from the tribe of Levi. Okay. The kings, on the other hand, okay, they came from the tribe of Judah. Okay, so just just keep that in mind for a second. So even though there was no mention of priesthood up until now, this is the first person who is introduced as a priest, okay? Even though no laws of priesthood are given. Also, he is the only one in all of scripture to be both a king and a priest. Because again, the, the kings come from the tribe of Judah and the priests come from the tribe of Levi, okay? So, so in that sense, it would be impossible for any human, according to the rules that... Um, governed the nation of Israel, right? Of course, up until this point, there were no yet tribes, right? Because we know that the tribes were, uh, the, were the, the children of Jacob, right? The 12 tribes of Israel came from the children of Jacob. At this point, you know, we haven't even gotten to Jacob yet. Jacob hasn't even been born yet, right? But there was, there was never a person that could be both a king and a priest at the same time. So here yet we see that he is the king and a priest. Again, this is a type of Christ because Christ is a king and Christ is also the great high priest as we read about in the book of Hebrews, okay? So, so he's very unique in the sense. Um, also, the type of sacrifice that he made is very, very unusual. We never hear about anyone ever in scripture apart from Jesus Christ himself making an offering of bread and wine, Right? The, 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 this, is the, this is the New Testament sacrifice. This is the sacrifice that we make on the altar in the liturgy is the sacrifice of bread and wine. Not anyone in the Old Testament ever offered bread and wine, nor did God ever ask anyone to offer bread and wine because they only offered animal sacrifices, right? That was by commandment of God that they would offer animal sacrifice. Here he's offering this bread and wine. So very much uh, a type of Christ and the priesthood of Christ who is offering himself as his flesh and his blood as a sacrifice in the form of bread and wine, okay? Also, we see that uh, Melchizedek is the one who blessed Abram. So, so the, the one who is the higher, the one who has the more honor is the one who blesses the one who has less honor, right? The, the higher rank blesses the lower rank, okay? So here, the fact that Melchizedek is blessing Abram means that Melchizedek is of a higher rank than Abram, okay? But Abram is the chosen of God. Abram is the one whom God chose to be the patriarch of the entire nation. Like all of the, the people of God, Abram is the beginning, right? In the, in the Old Testament, the people of God were the ones who were blessed more than all the other nations of the earth. And Abram represents the entire people of God. Right. So how is it possible that this man, Melchizedek, could be the one who blesses Abram instead of the other way around? That Abram is the one who blesses Melchizedek. So, again, there is something unique here about about this man. Also, it says that Abram paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Right. Abram paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Again, Melchizedek is the one receiving right the tithe as opposed to Melchizedek is the one paying the tithe. To Abraham. So again, it represents how Abraham is like of a higher rank than Melchizedek. Another thing about this is that like the tribe of Levi, which doesn't exist yet, is coming from Abram. 
so you can say like the, the 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 tribe of Levi is like within the loins of Abram. Like Abram represents the tribe of Levi, which is to come from him, and the tribe of Levi represents the Old Testament priesthood. Okay, so here it's showing that the priesthood of Melchizedek, okay, which which later on we're going to read about this priesthood of Melchizedek. The priesthood of Melchizedek is a higher type of priesthood than the priesthood of Levi. Because the priesthood of Melchizedek is the one who is blessing and receiving tithe from the, the Levitical priesthood, which is represented here by Abram, right? So um, in the New Testament, right, so much in the book of Hebrews and in other places, it speaks about how the priesthood of Christ is according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Levi. Because the New Testament priesthood, the, the priesthood of Christ, is not of the same type of priesthood as the Old Testament priesthood, which is the priesthood of Levi. So, so here again, this man, Melchizedek, is representative of the New Testament priesthood in everything that he's done in the offering of the bread and wine and the receiving of the tithe from Abram. And, 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 and he is both a king and a priest as symbolic of Christ, who is also our king and the great high priest. In Psalm 110, uh, verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. And here is speaking about Christ. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, right? This is a messianic psalm in Psalm 110. And it's speaking about the priesthood of Christ and how this priesthood of Christ was higher than the priesthood of Levi, okay? Also, we read about Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews, okay? St. Paul speaks about him in Hebrews chapter 7, he says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. We never hear about him again. Like we don't hear about him being born and we don't hear about him dying, right? Just like, like he, it's as though it's like eternal, right? He's not actually eternal. He's not immortal. He's a man. But, but because we don't know anything about his birth and his death, his genealogy. So it's like symbolic again um, of Christ. But made like the son of God remains a priest continually. So here also when St. Paul is speaking about him, he is not saying that he is the son of God. He is saying made like the son of God in the sense that he is symbolic of the son of God. Remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is from their brethren though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham. Here's speaking about Melchizedek. And blessed him who had the promises, right? So even though Abraham had the promises of God, this man Melchizedek is the one who blessed Abraham. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. So it's as though, again, Abraham is representative of Levi. Levi, the one who received tithes from the other tribes, 
Here, Levi is paying tithes to this Melchizedek, for he was still in the loins of his father, Abraham, when Melchizedek met him. So it's kind of long-winded a little bit to read it all, but essentially it's saying all the things that we just said, okay? All of this confirmed in uh, the book of Hebrews, that this man, Melchizedek, was a very special man, representative of Christ in the New Testament priesthood. And someone is asking, how did we prove that Melchizedek was not a pre-incarnate Christ? Um, most of the church fathers all say and agree that he was not a pre-incarnate Christ and he was just a man, but a symbol of Christ. There was actually a, um, a miracle that had happened. Uh, I, 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 I don't remember where the, this was recorded, um, but it, I think it was like among the early desert fathers or you know, very long ago that there was a monk who was asking God for to see a vision of uh, uh, you know of all of the the early patriarchs of the church, and so one of the people that he saw in this vision was Melchizedek, um, along with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of these others, um, kind of indicating that Melchizedek was a man like all of the others, and not um, you know and not Christ himself. But um, the the majority of the church fathers believe that Melchizedek was not a pre-incarnate Christ, but he was um, only a man who was a symbol of Christ. Okay. <clears throat> now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went, uh, who went with me. Aner, Eskol, and Mamer, let them take their portion. So um, essentially at the end of the battle, here this king of Sodom, who was now rescued by Abram and, and his, his, his army, essentially, He's giving this, like all of these goods that had been confiscated that was belonging to the king of Sodom and that Abram had now liberated. He's essentially saying, take all of this as a reward. You know, everything that you have returned, take it as a reward because of this great thing that you have done for me. But Abram refuses and he says, uh, you know, that essentially my reward is from God and that I don't want to accept anything from you. Uh, because I don't want anyone to, to say that you are the one who made me rich. You are the one who has blessed me. And the reason that I am powerful is because of you. But instead, it is because I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. God is the one who has blessed me. God is the one who has given me all that I have. And so I want to give that honor and glory to God and not to you. Okay, St. Ambrose, he says, he has been honest in war, humble in his victory, preferring not to get rich through grants from others, but through those from God. Okay, so, so here we read the conclusion uh, of this uh, and, uh, and the end of the war and the liberation, again, of Lot uh, by Abram. Okay. In chapter 15, we read about a covenant that God here is making with Abram, okay, which is one of the main covenants that we read about in the Old Testament, which is this, this strong promise that God is making. There is a distinction here when we use the word covenant of what does a covenant entail 
um, uh, uh, like compared to just a promise. Because a lot of times we we consider that a, a covenant means promise. Okay, but the covenant here is is has a certain structure and framework. Whenever God makes a covenant, okay, a covenant has to be between uh, one who is higher to one that is lower. So here God is the higher, right? He is the one who is making a covenant with the one that is lower. And, and the, the promise here is God is making a promise to Abraham. And in, and, and in return, God is telling Abraham, but you must obey me, right? This is the, the structure of the covenant. So he says here, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. This here is, you know, saying that the reward for Abram wasn't to see the outcome of the promises. It wasn't that he would, you know, see with his own eyes these descendants of his that were going to be, you know, more than the sand of the sea, okay? This is saying that the reward, right, is the presence of God. He says, God is saying, do not be afraid. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. The presence of God with Abram was his reward, okay? And this is why in this chapter in Hebrews 11, right, when we read about these heroes of faith, it says about Abraham, it says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, okay, which is Canaan. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He's like waking, waiting for this nation that God is promising him to be formed, right? And he, it has not yet formed as, and, and, you know, at this period of time. It has not yet formed for Abraham, right? He hasn't seen it. And in verse 13 in Hebrews 11, it says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They believed, and the presence of God was what brought them like joy and contentment. That was their reward. They did not see the reward of the outcome of their faith, but God was present with them. And here God is saying, I am your exceedingly great reward. This was the 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 kind of the the, the greatest thing that Abraham had throughout all of this was the presence of God with him, okay? So then it says, but Abraham looked, oh, sorry, but Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abraham said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So uh, Abraham is now looking to, like the practical matters, like, okay, you, I'm going to be the father of many nations, okay, but I don't have any male children, right, to continue my line, and the only one that I have, which would be the, the heir, is Eliezer of Damascus, actually, who was a servant, okay, so it was common that if a person didn't have any male offspring, that the, the, the chief servant of their house would actually be the one to inherit, so Abram is saying, I don't have any male children, I go childless, how is it that you are going to do this? Like, how is it that you are going to continue my, my line? 
So it says, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven. Uh, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Okay. So one thing to also understand about this promise is that the children of Abram were not just his physical descendants, right? So like from, from a genealogy perspective, um, that all of the Jewish people could trace their line back to Abraham. Yes, those are the descendants of Abraham. But those are not the only descendants, okay? Because in the scripture, in the New Testament, all the promises of God that were promised to the nation of Israel are now promises made to the church. The, in the Old Testament, the Jewish nation was the children of, of God. And in the New Testament, the entire church is the children of God. So, so in that sense, we are all descendants of Abraham, not from a physical sense, but from the sense of, of being children of God, okay? And, and because we believed in God, okay, we became the children of Abraham. And St. John the Baptist, he made this clear, okay? When he was having an argument with the Pharisees, okay? And the, and the, the Pharisees were, um, you know, believing that they had some special status um, because they were the Jewish people. And essentially, they believed that nothing that they did could cause God to ever reject them because they had like a special status, okay? But St. John the Baptist, he made it clear in Luke chapter 3. He said, he's speaking to the Pharisees here, and he says, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. From these stones. What does he mean? He says, he's saying God can bring all of the Gentiles, all of the nations and make them to be children of Abraham through faith. Because those of us who have become believers, who have been baptized into the church in the New Testament, have become children of Abraham, who have become the people of God, who have inherited all the promises of the Old Testament, right, that God had made to his people. Okay, and this was a promise that God made. And, and we read about this in Romans 9, when, when God said, I will call them my people who are not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. Meaning all those who were not considered the people of God all throughout the Old Testament, God have made them his people. I will call them my people who are not my people. And so we as like uh, as believers as a whole have all become children of Abraham. So his descendants are not just the nation of Israel in a literal sense, but, but the spiritual Israel who is the church. Okay. Then it says, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham was righteous before God because he believed what God said, even though he never saw the outcome with his own eyes. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Okay. So God is now going to confirm the, prof, the, the, the promise with um, uh, a sign. Okay. And this sign is more of a, a ritual that demonstrates the covenant between God and Abraham. Okay. And I'm not going to read it now. 
because even though it's only a few verses, it's extremely deep. And I would say that this sign, maybe you can read it on your own. And so we can talk about it next week in verses uh, 9 through uh, 17. Okay. This is one of the deepest signs in all of the Bible. And when we first read it without understanding what it is, it seems, sounds very strange, very confusing. One of those things that you would read in the Bible and just kind of gloss over it because you don't really know what it means um, and just go along your way. But when you understand what this means, it really like is very powerful and gives you a sense of like awe in the mercy of God and the love of God and the way that God sees us and the way that God, God deals with us. So consider this to be a cliffhanger that I'm not going to tell you what it means this time. So come next time and God willing, it will become clear. This is in uh, Genesis 15 verses 9 through 17. This is the ritual that God made with Abraham to confirm this agreement, this covenant that God is making for him. And it is very beautiful when we understand uh, what it means. So this is a good stopping point for today. Um, let's just uh, conclude in a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O God of heaven and earth. We thank you, O Lord, because of all of the covenants and promises you have made with our forefathers that we are now enjoying and, and we are blessed through their faith and through the obedience that they've had to you. We ask, O God, that you grant us a heart of faith to trust in you, even in the things that we have yet to see, that we believe, O Lord, that you are preparing, O Lord, all that you have prepared and that you are making the way straight before us and so that we might enter your kingdom and live in eternity with you. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.